Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You are indeed listening to The Animal Farm. We are back, and we are live, and it is our 50th broadcast. And, of course, the intro was incorrect. Right on cue, Ben. Yeah, my name is Benjamin Miller, and I am chilling here with my fellow truth seekers, Tony Pax. Hello, Ben. And Pyeth on the soundboard. The date today. <laughs> the date today is Tuesday, July eighth, two thousand eight. We've got a great show for everybody tonight. We've got David Bloom, author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas, on in the second hour. Yes, we've got a brand new law or lie as well. <laughs> and as always, we'll be keeping you updated on the latest news as well as serving you a fresh plate of animal farm analysis. Straight ahead, you are on the farm. We've got to clean up this country. You're listening to the Animal Farm Radio Show on We the People Radio Network. We are here today to effect a change. We are here today to fuel the deconstruction of the official myth. We are here today because fear is never a good enough reason to do nothing. We are here today to begin draining the cesspool of lies and distortion we refuse to drown in any longer. We are here today to ask those still sleeping to wake up. Probably be a 50th Animal Farm show without an intro getting screwed up here or there. Of course, it's, it's, just, it's natural. It's part of our vendetta for now. We have a new intro uh, every different time of the show. But well, yeah, well, keep in mind now, Ben, at the half of this show, at the the second hour, I should say, the beginning of the second hour is going to be the right intro. So just be be patient. Okay, folks. that's going to be the long one. Okay, number to call in, folks, if you want to reach us, five one two six four six nineteen eighty four. That's five one two. 646-1984, if you'd like to instant message us or fast blast us, uh, that screen name is Animal Farm Show, all one word, and that's AOL Instant Messenger, so feel I'm free to do so. To <laughs> we usually start off the show with a ridiculous, uh, funny article. Tony uh, usually picks out the best ones. Yeah, I mean, consistently. Yeah, there were actually some tough selections. I have some good ones here, Ben. And oh boy, maybe I should just start out with the beer pong video game now has controversy brewing. I'm excited about this, Ben, because I do own a Nintendo Wii, and I'm a big fan of beer pong. At the same time, I love so beer pong. It's a win-win situation. I played many times over the uh, July Fourth. Oh, did you weekend. really? Yes. Well, you know, of course, uh, some people know this game as Beirut. It's a very big college game where, mm-hmm. you know, seven or eight little Dixie cups are placed on each end of the table and you throw a ping pong ball. They're and stacked into pyramids. And yeah, you, you if you get, get it in the there. opposing uh, ping pong, uh, the opposing cup, then of course the opponents have to drink the cup and it's just another way to get drunk, basically. But it's mm-hmm. a lot of fun and it, it gets some camaraderie going in the college atmosphere. But here's the problem, Ben. Um, Connecticut's Attorney General isn't happy that a video game called Frat Party Games, Beer Pong, was rated suitable for children as young as 13. Again, this is a Nintendo Wii game. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's downloadable from the console, because the console connects to the Internet. Yes. Uh, Richard, which is another name I can't... Blue, th- Blue Menthol said Monday that the... Inter- we have a whole bunch of names. Blue Menthol. Tonight. But by the way, Ben, we have a whole bunch of names tonight. I just want to let yes. you know that I'm going to mis- mispronounce. But anyway, Richard Blue Menthol said Monday that the Entertainment Software Rating Board made a mistake by clearing the game for young teens as he worries other games in the yet-to-be-released Frat Party Games line will also be approved for those same gamers. Beer Pong, in quotes here, was designed by Las Vegas-based JV Games Incorporated as a downloadable game for the Nintendo uh, Wii system. So, you know, they, they 
get this out there and, and they call it beer pong and nobody during the game, no animations of anybody drinking or I thought I thought at first was yeah, maybe if you know if you're losing it's harder to throw the ball because you're yeah. drunk. The screen's going back and forth. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can something. dream, can't I? But That'd anyway, be cool. <laughs> it'd be kind of fun. J V Games yes. Vice President Jag Yeager. What? We get these? Oh, we got some great names okay. coming up here. Informed Blue Menthol. <laughs> Jag Yeager informed Blue Menthol last month. The, the, the Blue Menthol. That's, it just that's, a, like, that's, that's a pretty famous person. Like, I've heard that name before. I don't know. It just sounds weird. But last month, <laughs> the company is renaming the game Pong Toss. So, you know, it's. I think they're going to, you know, hopefully you get your hands on the original download, but I, yep. eventually it's going to be very non-beer related because, God forbid, you know, kids don't anything about beer. It'll be apple it's juice okay, pong. Well, it's okay that they watch TV and they see the commercials for beer and smearing off ice and Mike's Hard Lemonade. That's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not that's nothing wrong with that, but, of course, they can't play the game that promotes it. I became an alcoholic because my parents didn't love me, you know? <laughs> and, just and then I became a junkie because my parents didn't love me, you know? <laughs> oh boy! So Blue Menthol came out and said a statement here. We stopped this game, but that is the only that is only a minor victory if it is followed by others. He believes the shut game. Up! The game. Shut up! Shut yeah. up! This, yeah. Of course, he believes the get the game glorifies alcohol abuse and binge drinking. Um, so that's you know that's I guess number one, Ben. It wasn't very funny. You know, there's some crazy stuff here. We have a uh, angry passenger who used the emergency slide to leave a plane. I guess while it was parked. But hopefully, guy. <laughs> and this is again. We wait for these names here. Guyanese authorities say a first-class airline passenger was so angry at seeing economy passengers leave a jetliner before him that he yanked open an emergency hatch and slid down the chute. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about having some nerve. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Look, I'm going to get up faster and save 13 seconds. Police spokesman, I'll try, Silol Persaud said the Guyanese man identified as Setananyand Christopher appeared to be intoxicated after the Delta Airlines flight from New York. Persaud said Sunday that local police arrested Christopher, who was quickly released on bail after the Friday incident. Uh, Delta spokesman Junior Horatio says the U.S. carrier plans to file charges against the man for interfering with flight crew members. Wow. Um, so, and then I wanted to talk about this, which is really not necessarily a first article. And I have a couple tonight, Ben, that we'll get into. Uh, well, you know what? Let me talk about this. We always seem to, you know, add cannabis to the show, which always makes for a good concoction here. Animal Farm plus cannabis equals fun every day. But now police <laughs> nabbed two cannabis growers that were growing it in a cemetery. So we had the guy. We had the guy with, you know, digging up. We had one case of men, you know, guys, whatever, digging up skulls and using them as bongs, which yes. I think is innovative to be the, you say the least. <laughs> but now we have uh, in Hanoi, police have detained two custodians who were about to harvest their first crop of cannabis, a source of drugs like hashish and marijuana from a cemetery in Vietnam's capital. Wow. A state-run newspaper reported on Monday. Police took in when man hung, 44, who heads the caretaker team at the cemetery in Hanoi's outer district of Hong Mai, and Ho A Lao, 46, after the authorities found cannabis plants grown on a 25 square meter or 82 square feet patch uh, in the Vietnam I River. I think the bald heads from Shaolin are behind this. Yeah, Lao, a tribal <laughs> man from the northern mountain, Montana's province of San Lao, bordering Laos, uh, testified he obtained the seeds in San La for cultivation from early 2008. And, ha- and that the harvest would soon start. So, you know, I guess they... They're getting high. Yeah, I guess they figured that that would be a good place to start there, Ben. But uh, I'll turn it over to you after that. Just crazy. And it always seems like the cannabis articles just fall on my lap. Why is that, Ben? I, I don't know. Why is that? I don't know. I don't know either. Um, I, don't, I, could, <laughs> I guess I, I just look for them. I don't know. <laughs> oh, this article out of uh, Zhenghua News. Yeah. Uh, London cops use knife crime as an excuse 
to conduct searches. Oh, this is this is ridiculous. Wow. Um, <laughs> knife crime has overtaken terrorism as top priority. Thank you, Pius. Has taken over terrorism <laughs> as a top priority from London Metropolitan Police British newspaper The Times reported on Saturday. The authorities have established a special anti-knife crime unit to address the recent spate of fatal stabbings in the British capital. Paul Stevenson, Deputy Commissioner of London Metropolitan Police, was quoted as saying, His announcement came after a 16-year-old boy became the 18th teenager that had been killed in violence in London this year. There were 26 youth murderers in 2007. Stevenson admitted the police uh, police's previous attempts to stop teenagers from carrying weapons did not work. The unit grouping specialist officers from across the capital will target known gang members and their associates who may be carrying supplying knives. They will also conduct random searches, according to the report. Incredible. So these <laughs> these clowns, I guess, I, we have to say, yeah, I are so. just are using knife crimes uh, to start searching people and to start uh, building their bureaucracy and making it bigger and Oh, just incredible. Probably because they've taken all the guns already. They've taken all the guns, so now they have to turn to the knives, and then and then eventually it will be spatulas and plungers and things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, baby wipes will soon be. <laughs> yeah. Well, keeping on the UK syndrome is what, of course, I like to call it, Ben. Keeping on the UK syndrome uh, material here. Now, toddlers who dislike spicy food may be labeled as racists. <laughs> Toddler, yes, sir. Toddlers who turn their noses up at spicy food from overseas could be branded racist by a government-sponsored agency. Uh, tax dollars hard at work. The <laughs> National Children's Bureau, which receives $12 million a year, mainly from government-funded organizations, has issued guidance to play leaders and nursery teachers, advising them to be alert for racist incidents amongst youngsters in their care. How Incredible. nice. This could include a child as young as three who says, yuck. In response to being served unfamiliar foreign food, uh, the guidance by the NCB is designed to draw attention to potentially racist attitudes in youngsters from a young age. Holy Isn't that crap. great, Ben? So I don't like Indian foods, therefore I don't like Indian foods. I mean, and, you know, it, it just seems like this mentality all across. And this is not just, you know, this was, again, this was in uh, in London here, but uh, out of the London Telegraph. But not across the world, it just seems like everything, all these problems, everybody seems, you know, government agencies are trying to tackle these problems at a young age. And I'll even have an article here, and there's a lot of health news tonight. There's some 9-11 news. Of course, we have Laura Lights, and there's so much to cover, so we're going to try to zoom through this as we often do. But now, I mean, cholesterol drugs are now urged for kids with heart rate. Risks. Doctors group here, this is out of uh, Chicago, Illinois, out of AP. For the first time, an influential doctors group is recommending that some children as young as eight be given cholesterol-fighting drugs to ward off future heart problems. No. So again, all these potential problems, we're going to get them at a young age by giving them drugs, of course. Uh, it is the strongest guidance ever given on the issue by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which released its new guidelines Monday. The Academy also recommends low-fat milk for one-year-olds and wider cholesterol testing. <laughs> what did we ever do when we were colonizing this country? Dr. Stephen Daniels of the Academy's Nutrition Committee says the new advice is based on mounting evidence showing that damage leading to heart disease, the nation's leading killer begins early in life, Ben. It also stems from recent research showing that cholesterol-fighting drugs are, quote, gen uh, generally safe for children. Generally oh, safe. Wow. I don't know how you Incredible. would define generally. Does that mean one out of ten die? One out of a hundred? If it makes matters worse, this is what kills me. So this is this guy, Daniel, Stephen Daniels. Uh, he has worked as a consultant to Abbott Laboratories and Merck. Ah. Uh -huh. 
But and, they, tr they try to make, uh, yeah, they try to make it a, okay, but not on matters involving cholesterol drugs. So, you know, there's no conflict of interest there. You know, mm -hmm. I, I believe him. He's a doctor, after all. He went to school for eight years. He says, if we are more aggressive about this in childhood, I think we can have an impact on what happens later in life and avoid some of these heart attacks and strokes in adulthood. So this is a theory by a doctor that has interest in Merck, one mm -hmm. of the biggest pharmaceutical uh, you know, companies in the world. And we don't even know if this is going to, you know, how do we know this is going to work? So, uh, first of all, they never say when they're going to stop taking the drug. They just say from age two, uh, no later than age two than age ten, every, they're going to have, you know, routine checkups for this type of thing. But, yeah, we don't know when they're going to stop taking these drugs. Wow. And we don't know if it's proven that it's going to stop heart attack, you know. Well, it's everything. It everything just makes is, you sick. Everything is drugs, you know. That's yeah, the answer yeah, that's to everything. And, and yeah. you know, we, we don't eat proper in our adult lives. Uh, I'm not one to talk because I eat like crap. But well, we, we don't eat, eat proper in most adult. people. And, and we have heart problems as a result for that. So now they're going to put children uh, on, on drugs. You know, and, and drugs and alcohol. I often, I often, you know, get on Big Pharma. I'm often against a lot of these drugs. And I'm not against drugs, Ben. I, mean, I know drugs have a place, and, and certainly I would not want to be without some antibiotics. I don't do drugs, yeah, though. Just weed. Just weed. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, this article goes on here. It says, drug treatment would generally be targeted for kids. You know, well, the question I had, Ben, was, okay, we're talking about high cholesterol, but then they give us this nonsense about bad cholesterol and LDL and mm -hmm. HDL. They say drug treatment would generally be targeted for kids at least eight years old. <laughs> Eight years old wow. who have too much LDL, the bad cholesterol, along with any uh, with other risky conditions, so that they, uh, including obesity and high blood pressure. So, you know, I don't know how many kids eight years old have these symptoms, but this is these are the targeted kids, the ones with too little HDL, the good cholesterol. The first course of action should be weight loss, more physical activity, and nutritional counseling. Which I'm not a doctor, of course, but I would recommend that. Anyway, yeah. So there you go, Ben. There's, you know, just some of the opening statements here at the Animal Farm. Obviously, it's going to be a great show tonight, and um, you know, there's a lot of news. There's some 9/11 news. There's some health news coming out, and, and of course, the police state news. And yep. of course, yeah, the daily dose of police state news. So why don't you take it over there, Ben, and we'll keep the ball rolling here. Um, well, they, the anarchist groups right now are coming out and saying that they are going to be at the RNC and they're going to be doing violent protesting. They're pretty much coming out and saying that you know we're essentially going to block, <laughs> be block, yes. Uh, physically blocked direct action i think is was the uh, key word so this this article is coming out of uh, fox news it's a uh, are you ready for a war <laughs> well anarchists are hitting the airwaves in the midwest they call themselves the rnc welcoming committee and they have plans to crash the republican convention in minnesota later this summer fox's jamie reese from station kmsp has that story for us you are listening to Fresh Air Community Radio. On independent radio station KFAI, the Community Access Hour called the Wave Project featured a group determined to make waves. The Welcoming Committee is an anarchist, anti-authoritarian organizing body preparing for the Republican National Convention. Until now, what was known about the ironically named RNC Welcoming Committee came from its website. We think that we have a responsibility to stand up. Around microphones in a studio like this one, three members identified only as Harold, Emma, and Tony explained their plans to crash the convention. We're not trying to influence the Republicans. Um, they already know that people are against the war. People are against pollution, global warming, and racism. Um, the Republicans just don't seem to care. Unlike other protesters planning to march on the XL Energy Center, the welcoming committee wants to cut off the arena from delegates. We don't think that the political elite will, will stop because we asked nicely, and so 
we advocate a strategy of direct action uh, in this case, um, not letting them hold the convention. Last week, Fox 9 reported how the group had obtained shuttle routes and other transportation information as part of their strategy to set up blockades. All that means is you're going to stay in intersection or in a place and you're not going to leave when the police tell you to leave. Nearby business owners say they're thinking about the customers the convention will bring, not the chaos and have no plans to board up their windows. The RNC Welcoming Committee says property destruction is not part of their plan, but they wouldn't pull it out either. People attending the RNC are people who work for weapons manufacturers, drug companies, some of the banks responsible for all these housing foreclosures, not to mention the war criminals from Washington, D.C. themselves. These aren't Okay. So we'll get to this when we get back. Um, we'll talk about nonviolence versus violence, uh, property destruction versus non. Uh, so we will be back momentarily. Stay tuned. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to The Animal Farm on the We The People Radio Network. Number to call in, 512-646-1984. That's 512-646-1984. We just, <laughs> we just played this clip um, from Fox News and a group of anarchists uh, called the Welcoming Committee for the RNC uh, were planning some action at the uh, RNC, and they were actually planning forceful action, and they were even talking about... Uh, destroying property. How about that? Um, but, I mean, what do you think about this, Tony? Well, you know, it, it, it's a difficult subject here, Ben, because uh, there's some people that just want to protest. They want to peacefully protest and exercise their First Amendment. And then there are other people that we talk about who want to get violent. And then in the mix of it all, even if, even if everybody was naturally nonviolent, you have police and uh, other police organizations putting in you know, provocateurs. provocateurs, thank yes. you, there's the word I was going to remember, uh, who are actually going to cause trouble so that they can use it as an excuse and further take away our rights. And, of course, you know, we remember 2004 with the RNC. It was it was literally New York was a police state. That's why yeah. martial law, Alex Jones' movie, which was my first, uh, was so impactful because I was not there for that. I didn't, I was never, it really wasn't documented that much. And then when we heard about the, the Pier 51 or concentration, you know, concentration camps, thank you, with the old oil, you know, bus refinery depots mm -hmm. where they put people in there and Aged them, and some people were breaking out yep. in rashes and getting sick. I was there, and it was uh, it was a pretty bugged out time. Uh, there were police absolutely everywhere. Every, you could not look anywhere without police being there. You could not smoke a joint on the street. You could not pick your nose without somebody well, knowing. Yeah. Um, and it was just it was it was all it, it was bedlam in the sense, but it was also very very peaceful. I didn't see any uh, quote unquote anarchist groups or evil anarchist groups or anything like that, but. They were actually taking those uh, those construction nets and scooping up large street fills with worth of people. They were just people coming. They out were barricading them. They were putting them in these little barricades and they were shipping them off to these little bus depots. So these concentration camps. And, yeah. You know, I, I saw that ban, and of course that movie made a huge impact on me for a number of reasons. Uh, but yes. really, that was the first time that I ever got a really good glimpse of wow, yeah, this is really happening, and yeah. this is not just this is not just free speech. No, this is active active removal of protesters uh -huh. in America. Yeah. And look, nobody wants to be late for work because traffic, because of protesters, but you know what? At the same time, uh, we have to live with it and we have to realize how important it is to exercise free speech and it's just being taken away. And I'm the last person in the world that's got to tell anybody listening that this is happening. But um, either way, Ben, it just seems like the more that things are getting worse in this country, the, the more that mm -hmm. situations that are degrading and getting worse, the more, yeah, the more we're yeah. going to protest and therefore it's, it's for, for the establishment, for the military industrial 
complex, um, it's it's a win-win situation because things are getting worse and people are getting squeezed harder. And yes, protesting is going to become more rampant, and therefore rights are going to be taken away uh, more progressively. So I yeah. think we're in big trouble in that I mean, sense. I, think I don't know. Pathetic. The whole country's shot. We're definitely, <laughs> we're definitely in big trouble in that yeah, part. Um, but so. you know, in terms of in terms of people being violent versus nonviolent, I just I got to go with nonviolent. Not even because it's not, the violence isn't warranted. Uh, you know, in, in my opinion, I think I think we're actually uh, I think we actually have the, our God-given right at this point to start overthrowing our government violently. I just don't think it's a logical thing to do. I think if you, if you look at that as a game of chess, I think it's completely illogical to start going out there and shooting police officers, shooting oh, no, listen, no, shooting no, politicians no, no, no. because you're not going to get anywhere doing that. They're going to clamp down the police state harder. Uh, they're going to they're going to tighten up the free speech zones even more. What we have to do is educate people uh, and things of that nature. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, just to play the conspiratorial side here, yeah, I mean, I think that's what they. I think ultimately that's what the government wants. The active government. Yes. I think they want us to rebel to the point where they can give you that. Fox News clip of a civilian, dare I say that term, but in this context, it's, yeah. it's appropriate, or several people beating the hell out of a cop. I would never want to see that. That's not what I would ever yeah. condone. But the more people get pressed, eventually someone's going to lose their mind, even if it's a provocateur. And if they can feed that clip around the newswire for mm -hmm. seven days and it becomes the next A-Rod Madonna story, then all of a sudden you're going to have the Bill Crystals of the world on, you know, all the yeah. people. The Brit Humes are going to cover it. And all of a sudden it's going to be Police State America 2008. And they're going to have every reason now to say, well, we need to, you know, yeah. condemn free speech. This cannot go on. The police officer died. He's got a family. And, of course, it's all they need to keep moving their agenda along. So well, it's, it's very interesting. And I have a clip uh, right here coming up um, talking about sci-fi weapons. Uh, uh, they, they got their budgets in, the security budgets for the sure, Democratic sure. National yeah. Convention and the Republican National Convention. That turns out they're uh, each getting $50 million. Oh, how about each that? city, yeah. So there's, they're talking about the weapons that they're buying. And it is a CNN clip playing uh, that I will get to momentarily. But we do want to go to the phones um, and get your opinion so far on things. Richard from Texas, you're on the farm. Hey, guys, just wanted to uh, make a comment with regard to the use of the uh, term anarchy or anarchist here a moment ago. You know, okay. that, that term has been demonized by uh, the media and, and politicians and, and that sort of thing uh, with interest in, in wanting it demonized for some time. It basically, mm -hmm. is, is in, in its true definition, is a term that refers to living without a lot of rules and regulations and in a totally free, more or less unregulated society. You know, regulation would go on among individuals, among sovereigns, among local communities, and that kind of thing. But anarchists have been uh, demonized to make it appear as though they're people who advocate violence, um, overthrow of uh, uh, <clears throat> businesses and, and disruptive uh, behavior and that kind of thing. And that's just absolutely not what anarchy is. So I, I really just wanted to inject that and, and uh, encourage you guys guys to have a look at anarchy and, and uh, learn a bit more about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've looked at, I've looked at it in great detail. Um, but one of the things, you know, and the reasons why I call these people anarchists is because they call themselves anarchists. Um, well, yeah, you know, but again, that's, I think that's but, a misuse of the term. They did. But the thing is, is and, and when you're talking about demonizing, and I completely agree with you, it, they do that because, you know, a lot of people in our movement and ourselves, Richard, are looked at as anarchists. That's what, you know, the neocons call us, these fringe groups, these anarchist groups. Evil and, and we're actually for a lawful government. We're actually for the Constitution yeah. and the rule of law um, yeah, um, exactly. and, and things of that nature. Um, you know, so, so that's, what, that's kind of what we're for. They're actually the ones that are lawless, that are anarchists, that really don't follow the law in general. Well, and kind of those guys are provocateurs that are actually 
misusing that term, you know, and, and so it, it does. It's yeah, no, listen, that. Richard, no, Richard, the point is well taken. First of all, I want to just add that obviously anarchists are not the only group that, that are demonized, A, and B, that are obviously um, put into a different context or different light on the mainstream media. I mean, almost every group is, you know, right off the top of the head, 9-11 truthers, yeah. uh, even people who want to impeach Bush. I mean, every time someone speaks out or a group finally gets the mass to speak out against the government, quote, super patriots, that, that, yeah, that you know, were handed it, out the FBI flyer saying that the super patriots were elite, were, were right. you know, evil and things of that nature, yeah. And, you know, aside from the radio talk show hosts like the Reagans of the world that call for the, you know, beheadings and, and assassinations of us or, or people that are speaking out against it, yeah, they're, they're always demonized. But, you know, I did actually just type into dictionary.com anarchist, uh, a person who advocates or believes in an anarchy or anarchism, of course, a person who seeks to overturn by violence all constituted forms and institutions of society and government with no purpose of establishing any other system of order in the place of that destroyed. Now, hold on a second, Richard. I want to give you your chance to respond. That's the problem that I've always had with the word anarchist. And now I want to give, now, Richard, I want to let you tell us what, you think it means or that what it means to you more importantly but that's why i would never consider myself an anarchist i mean look i'm all for the violent overthrow if things are that bad i'm i'm prepared to do and to make those sacrifices but right now i would agree with ben that you know what right now i think we can you know through diplomacy and through actually electing the proper officials and a whole bunch of other things we can make a difference um Thank you, Pius, for the sound effects there. But yeah, I mean, you know, by definition, an anarchist is a violent person. And well, to be uh, honest, I did I did not realize that the definition included a reference to the use of violence to achieve the aims. I, you know, I've been listening to Alex Ansari and the No State Project guys, and all those guys talk about it, and they certainly, you know, some of them profess to even be anarchists, but they don't seem to make much reference to the use of violence to achieve aims. So that yeah. that kind of yeah. takes me aback. Well, the other thing, too, Richard, and I'll give you the third definition. I've already given you the first two, and I'm just trying to be fair, and I'm not, I'm not trying no, to criticize... Fine. Yeah, I'm not trying to criticize the group, the anarchists, too, because I have an enormous respect for a lot of anarchists that I listen to on the radio. But the third definition here is a person who promotes disorder or excites revolt against any established rule or custom. Now, let me also, for a second here, let me be an advocate of, of anarchists. Um, I have to agree with a lot of anarchist philosophy that we are in such a dire time, and the circumstances are so dire. we got 20 seconds here. I want to finish up on the other side. Richard, hold, I'm going to hold you over. I want to get more comments, folks. Animal Farm Show, when we get back... More discussion about anarchism and uh, police state news. Stay tuned. Show is what you're listening to. 512-646-1984 is the phone number. We're talking with Richard in Texas. Uh, the subject is anarchist. Hi. Yeah, they are. The groups, uh, you know, the anarchists, the self-proclaimed anarchists. Now, Richard, I gave you the definition. What's your response now? 
Well, you know, life is all about learning. I'm 57 years of age, and I thought I understood uh, basically the, the, the concept of anarchy, but you've just uh, given me a bit of an education, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, I really did not realize that violence was part of, uh, you know, sort of the, the inherent definition of anarchy. But uh, and, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating uh, violence at, at this stage in developments at all. I think the time that we're headed to for the uh, Republican and Democratic conventions is going to be extremely interesting. And you can be sure the provocateurs and all that kind of stuff will be in position. And God knows what kind of a security apparatus and zoning off and all the rest of it is going to take place. But we've got to be sure that we don't provide them with the uh, you know uh, fuel uh, to throw on the fire by by resorting to violence ourselves and, and allowing them to react the way that they may want to. Yeah, Richard, I think that's the general message. And, and you know, once again, my, my stance is it's tough. I mean, I'm, maybe I'm not really solid on any particular stance. I am at the point, I'm angry enough at the point where I may not see any other option in sight. But at this point, I agree with you, Richard. I, you know, I don't think we want to give them any more fuel for the fire. That's all they need. They've already, you know, destroyed the Bill of Rights to the point where, um, you know, our rights are almost disintegrated. And, and then you can go in the other route and say, you know, people still are just roaming around fat and happy watching their television. They don't even seem to know what's going on. And that's yeah. a whole other can of beans we won't open. But no, Richard, I'm glad. And listen, I, I'm always learning. I learned from you, the, the callers, and I listened, I learned from you. Ben and even from Pyeth once in a while with the sound clips. <laughs> but no, thank uh, Richard, thank you for the call. Anything else on your mind before we move on? Uh, yeah, I just uh, you know wanted to say that I think really the focus of, of media and, and national attention on these conventions is going to be uh, you know one where it will be very easy to paint up any kind of uh, violence or, or uh, you know misdeeds by uh, our community and, and anybody there um, as disruptive of the electoral process and uh, you know very easy to to, to paint us in a dark corner and there's going to be situations that will unfold either before or after that that I think we'll be able to perhaps react in a way that's appropriate that won't be easy as easy to demonize as a reaction disrupting the election process and with so much media focus. Yeah, well, yeah. Richard, let's just hope that whether it's provocateurs or actual anarchists or just protesters, let's just hope that we don't see an event or, you know, we don't witness an event that leads to, you know, tremendous violence, um, you know, against uh, police officers, that type of thing. But uh, as always, you know, we, we thank you for the call. So, yeah, yeah sure. my whole, good, my whole, good job, guys. My whole, Oh, thank Thanks you very much, Richard. Yeah, my thought towards the whole thing is, is you know, when you when you think about anarchy and and what it means in general is just, uh, and we were talking about this during the break, is is sort of an absence of law. Um, and what you you know, in a constitutional republic and a representative republic, what you want, you do want law. You do want uh, you do want people to protect your rights at the barrel of a gun. I hate to say it. I hate to counter uh, some of the other shows out there and their thought processes because I think they're so good and I think they're very philosophical philosophical in their sure. beliefs and yeah. I think it's great but you actually do want to you actually do want a, a service at a point of the gun so when somebody's violating my rights or some big you know six foot ten dude is beating the crap out of me I do I do want a cop to, to enter yeah. in and say okay it's my job to protect this person's rights yeah or you know if somebody comes in my house and starts bashing things with a baseball bat and hitting my TV and crap yes I want a cop to come in there and provide that service of, of, of my rights at a barrel of a gun sure yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, in a perfect world, we want the system to work. And once again, just to read the definition again, anarchist, uh, one of the definitions is, is a person who seeks to overturn by violence all constituted forms and institutions of society and government with no purpose of establishing any other system of order in the place of that destroyed. 
you want to be uh, blunt about what has taken place? You're listening to the Animal Farm Radio Show on We the People Radio Network. It will be righteous. We are going to be getting to Law or Lie next segment, um, but I wanted to play a clip really quick in regards to what we were talking about, um, the the weapons that are coming out to counter some of the quote-unquote violent protests at the RNC or DNC. So here it is out of CNN. Pepperball rifles, goo guns, and sonic rays. Some of them are just (laughs) wild rumors, but some may not be. Some of those weapons might be used to protect our political conventions later on this year. Ed Lavendera is at the convention site in Denver where the Democrats are going to meet in August, and he's got more on this for us. Ed? John and Kieran, to prepare for this summer's political conventions, Congress is giving the host cities, Denver and St. Paul, Minnesota, $50 million each to pay for security expenses. But what exactly that money is being spent on is top secret here in Denver. $25 million buys a lot of very interesting things. Bob Newman is an anti-terrorism consultant helping some Denver companies prepare for the Democratic Convention. He's anxious to see what kind of crowd control weaponry authorities will deploy for the conventions. There are also these crazy rumors going around. City officials and the police department won't talk about most of the weapons in the... This is your pepper rounds. But they have confirmed one report that several hundred thousand dollars worth of high-powered pepper ball rifles will be used to disperse crowds. So when that hits, the ball breaks, powder expels. The same exact reaction as pepper spray, except it's powder. Congressional testimony revealed there will also be specialized gas detection equipment and biohazard equipment. Then there are the science fiction-like weapons that may or may not be part of the arsenal. Like the goo gun. It shoots a, um, almost like a, a rubbery, gelatinous mass that, when it strikes the body and it comes out in a continuous stream, it wraps around limbs and wraps around the torso, and the person can't move. It can also make a Humvee spin in place. Then there are the weapons that would make unruly crowds run for cover, like a sonic ray gun, a device which emits an ear-piercing sound, and a microwave device that can be focused on an area and make you feel like your skin is on fire. The ACLU has sued the city of Denver to find out if these weapons are in the arsenal. Instead of asking the public, how come you want to know, maybe the question should be posed to the government, why are you so interested in keeping this secret? Rational people are not concerned, but we know who is concerned, and those are the ones who will be causing the, the problems. Ah, okay, so True Colors, the security person shows, and he says the rational people are the ones that aren't concerned about yeah, this. Right, right. The, 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 the sheep are not concerned because they don't know what's going on, but talk about catching up with sci-fi. We have ray guns and goo guns, Ben. Goo guns. I just can't, I mean, can you think of any better name? But really quick, uh, before the segment's <laughs> over, I'm going to take some phone calls. Kid Gorilla in Texas, you were on the animal phone. Yeah, I was actually calling in response to what you'd said about how many people are walking around and just kind of happy that they all they got to do is watch their television. And I got a new job over at a hospital, and the surprising thing is that as conversations begin and people start asking, so what do you do for fun, 
And so, well, one thing I don't do is watch television, and they're just quite, they're they're almost beside themselves. It, it, like, it's almost a little, you. say what? They're yeah. like, how dare yeah, you? How, how could you not watch television? Yeah, I mean, it's or, unheard of. Or, and then, of course, the inevitable the, the inevitable two questions are why, and then another one is, so you don't watch sports, or how do you find out about the news? I said, well, if it's something really big, the news really gets to us. It gets to us quick if it's really big. But uh, why, and I, and I ask him point blank, would you want to have a friend that constantly told you every day, constantly, that there's nothing but bad news out in the world? Would you keep a friend like that? And they're like, no. I said, then why would you want a machine that does that? And they just kind of look at me. It's almost like a bovine look in their eyes. And I'm not saying that I'm I'm above them at all. It's just it's just still to this day surprises me that they would really ask anyone who really watches television to the extent of quote unquote I'm addicted to my television to that extent. It just surprises me that still to this day, I mean there's there's really nothing on television that is so entertaining that I would actually want to spend 150 some odd dollars a month. You know, as far as cable is concerned, so I never yeah, and, and, George, and that's, <laughs> that is their source of truth. Which actually, that's another thing that scares me. And I also hit them with something I heard from uh, the Disinformation Society, when, and I tell them, "Why do you think they call it programming?" And they go, "With well, programs that you watch on television." And I go, "It's programming your brain." Exactly, and, and, and it's, it's, it's not just the programming itself. You talk about the flicker rate of the television itself. That's been studied by many colleges. There's a lot of issues, and uh, unfortunately, we're actually coming up against the break here. I want to comment on this on the other side, but really quick, uh, it's a big circle, you know, when you really think about it, because nobody wants to hear bad news every day, but we also have to be, start becoming adults and start facing reality, especially people who have kids. I can't believe there are people who have kids who still have no idea what's going on, and they don't even want to hear it. So, folks, when we get back, Laura or live with Charles Ratner, stay tuned, and then Kid Gorilla. I will respond, and Ben will respond when we get back after Lorelai. Stay tuned. Get up, stand up. Yes. Stand up for your life. Yes. Animal Farm Radio Show. The website is animalfarmshow.com. So glad you can join us. Kid Gorilla just uh, called in before the last segment and made a really good point that I'm sure we could spend an entire year on. Just yeah. the idea of the population lulled to sleep by these ridiculous TV programs, not the least of which are these unfreaking believable reality shows that have no purpose other than just to keep you stupid until the next day where you go to work. But we'll get to that later. It is time now for America's favorite game show. And I want to have a Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to play... Episode 16 of Lorelei out of Now keep in mind, 20 episodes. Yes, I am too. Uh, 20 episodes will be the first season, and right now Ben is in the lead with 5 out of 15 correct. I have 3 out of 15. I have this 2 out of 15. We haven't moved in like the last four months. Folks, this is how it works. Charles Ratner is going to join us, and he's going to give us four laws. He is a lawyer, so he can get these laws, and he searches for the craziest laws in America. So one of these laws is not true. It's an actual fake law that either he made up or something like that. Your job as the listener and as the American here is to find out or guess which law is fake. Don't look it up. Don't cheat. Otherwise, you're not going to earn it. Yeah, we're not going to give you any points. <laughs> so, let me get him on the line here. Let's see. Charles Ratner, are you with us? Uh, I hope so. 
Charles, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. Charles, great. So once again, for uh, folks, four laws Charles is going to give us. One of them is bunk. The all, all the rest of them are true, but they're all going to be pretty much unbelievable. So without further ado, Charles, I want to give you the floor, and you tell us tonight's four laws on Lorelei, episode 16. Go ahead. All right, tonight, uh, all these laws come from Alaska. So, Alaska. law number one. In, uh, in Gustavus, Alaska, it is illegal to kayak within a quarter mile of a glacier. Law number two. In Fairbanks, Alaska, it is illegal to encroach upon private property uninvited unless you're licensed to sell goods and services door-to-door. In Anchorage, Alaska, or law number three, in Anchorage, Alaska, it is illegal to possess a slingshot on public school grounds. And law number four, in Juneau, Alaska, it is illegal for, for anyone to publicly or privately dispense beer from a keg unless a keg registration certificate is prominently displayed nearby. Okay, so those are the four laws. And like always, folks, I know it's a little tough to hear you tonight, Charles. I'm going to repeat those laws as slow as I can. You guys stand up a little bit better. A little static there. So hold on, Charles. We'll put on hold. All right, here we go. Four, law number one in Gustavus, Alaska, it is illegal to kayak within a quarter of a mile of a glacier. Which I hope is a little bit true. I don't know. Law number two in Fairbanks, Alaska, it is illegal to enter private land uninvited unless you have a license to sell goods and services door to door. In Anchorage, Alaska, it is illegal to possess a slingshot on school grounds. That's law number three. And in Alaska, it is illegal for anyone to dispense beer from a keg unless a keg registration is prominently displayed. My goodness. That's horrible. Uh, so what happens here usually with Charles is that he, you know, he, he tricks us and he always gives us one or two pieces of bait that we always go for and uh, tricks us that way. I'm going to... It's time for us to make our decisions here. This is going to be crazy. Yeah, this is going to be rough. You have a Tony's down little, Charles. I'm, this is <laughs> really tough, man. Oh, oh, my goodness. I'm 5 for 15, and I'm winning. Five for, yeah, no, that's the sad yeah, part. Very sad. Um, we'll grade you on a curve. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, I've got my answer. I don't have mine yet. Hold on, Pipe, do you have your answer? I'm, okay. I'm always the last guy. Son of a bee. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, know I, I know which one I want to go with, but I know it's going to be wrong. Uh, all right, I'm going to go with... All right. Son of a all right, put your answers <laughs> It's time for us to put our answers up, okay. Ben. I have, I'm going with two, oh. two, and two. Oh, I can't believe geez. it. There will be no progress made tonight, folks, unless it's all of us together. Charles, we're going with number two. We're saying that in Fairbank, Fairbanks, Alaska, pardon me, it is illegal to enter private land uninvited unless licensed to sell goods and services door-to-door. We're saying that that's going to be false. My first answer was number four. Watch this. Charles, drumroll your answer and then the camaraderie. Hey, you're all right for a change. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> you finally. <laughs> no ground is game. So, yes, That's it sweet. is. So, okay, we're going we're gonna to once again repeat this here. Um, <laughs> finally got it right. So here's the bunk law, folks. The non-true law is in Fairbanks, Alaska, it is illegal to enter private land uninvited unless licensed to sell goods and services door-to-door. Charles, tell us why that is false. 
Well, actually, it's illegal to sell goods uh, or services door to door in Fairbanks, Alaska. Period. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I smelled. See, I was going to go with no, number four, but I know that that was the bait. Mm. Uh, so, okay, so it is true that, however, these, these are the true laws. In Juneau, Alaska, it, it is illegal for anyone to dispense beer from a keg unless a keg registration is prominently displayed, which I can't imagine. I mean, of all places, you're living in Alaska. What else are you going to do besides drink beer and yeah. maybe play ice golf? Incredible. <laughs> Law number it three. actually has to be within five feet. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, anyway, I'd stick to scotch. In Anchorage, Alaska, it is illegal to possess a slingshot on school grounds, which I guess you could understand. You may be popping eye out. And it is true that in Gustavus, Alaska, it is illegal to kayak within a quarter mile of a glacier, which I guess you could understand, too. You know, you want people to get hurt. Charles, uh, excellent job. We did actually beat you tonight, all three of us, so we all improved by one, but it only helps Ben at this point. Yeah. I want to thank you for a great job like you always do. Any other last minute thoughts no uh guys uh, keep on doing what you do. excellent charles and once again i'm going to get you that new phone for your wedding present anniversary whatever uh keep us up to date there as always thank you so much for the call and so yeah folks that's uh that's the animal farm game show which we always love to do lorelei and uh, all, right. all right so there you go so four so here's where we stand now folks 20 episodes Thank you. Um, we're four away from that. So, uh, Ben, you're six out of 15. I'm now four out of 15 pi. It is oh, three out, out of 16, 16, right? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, six out of 16. Beg your pardon. Six out of 16. I'm three out of 16. Pi is two Whoops. out of 16. So it is nearing the end, folks. And almost yeah. now, almost mathematically, uh, we're getting to the point where you're going to win. So only a couple more, only four more episodes, and it's time to gain some ground. So, folks, stay tuned. When we come back, more of your phone calls and more news on the Animal Farm Radio Show. Farm Radio Show on We the People Radio Network. Hey, you're listening to Ben, Tony, and Pyatt on Animal Farm Radio Show. Hey, touch that dial, I'll break your f***ing head. something yeah and of course it's always refreshing to finally get one right it really is i mean we were on a like an o we were all on an o for like an o for seven i think very bad very bad i can't believe it i just don't believe it it's true but we are keeping on the police state news and i want to uh i want to comment on uh our friend kid gorilla what he said but first i want to kind of add fuel to the fire here now Terror Watch uses localized 181 training Colorado. So all across the United States, Ben, we hear about these little, you know, enforcement agencies using everybody to spy on us yes. and to increase the ever-emerging police state here in this beloved country. Uh, hundreds of police, firefighters, paramedics, and even utility workers have been trained and recently dispatched as terrorism liaison, uh, liaison officers, pardon no! me, in Colorado and a handful of other states to hunt for suspicious activity now we, what does that mean just just to turn the clock back a while maybe about seven months ago uh we, we heard about janitorial service people you know cleaning service people yeah keeping their eyes open for terrorism because it's, so, it's so rampant in this country obviously yep. but anyway um 
now these TLC uh, people, these terrorism liaison officers in Colorado and a handful of other states to hunt for suspicious activity, and now are reporting their findings into secret government databases, Ben. So it's just freedom all the way around yeah. here. It's a tactic intended to feed better data into terrorism, early warning systems, and uncover intelligence that could help fight anti-U.S. forces. But the vague nature of the TLO's mission and their focus on reporting both legal and illegal activity has generated objections from privacy advocates and civil libertarians. Well, what a surprise. Every time something like this happens, mm. it's the same ending to the same story. Yeah. Uh, suspicious activity, this is great. Suspicious activity is broadly defined in TLO's train, training as behavior that could lead to terrorism, taking photos of no apparent aesthetic value. <laughs> How could you possibly determine what my pictures have as far as aesthetic What if I like brick buildings? What if I like skyscrapers? What if I'm taking pictures of skyscrapers? And you and they could say I have no aesthetic value of these pictures, and they could now report that as suspicious activity. Making the measurements or notes, espousing extremist beliefs, or conversing in code, according to a draft Department of Justice slash Major Cities Chiefs Association document, uh, all this, uh, you know, it, it goes on here. The, the, the part that really kills me is we don't snoop into private citizens' lives. We aren't living in a communist state is one of the quotes. Yeah. But again, you go back to this idea that these TLC officers are hunting for suspicious activity. So I, I don't know what else. We're reckless, arrogant, stupid dicks. Modern day Gestapo. Is yeah. Is, uh... They're not snooping, but they're snooping. Go figure. Yeah. Mime, we'll be back momentarily, folks. We're going to switch gears. We're going to be talking to David Bloom, the author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas. So stay tuned. We'll stay be right back. It's ever changing for me and for everyone, but I don't get by. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. A world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! Things are going hey, right here. Before, um, <laughs> we knew that was coming. Yeah, we knew it was happening. Come on. Um, we said, Fucking thing sucks. <laughs> we said it was going to happen. Um, but we do have our guest on the line, uh, David Bloom. He is the author of Alcohol at Gas. He is the executive director of the International Institute of Ecological Ar Agriculture. He has been an alcohol fuel pioneer since the 70s and has consulted for a wide array of clients, including governments, farmers, and companies interested in turning waste into valuable and profitable products. David, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing great. It's great to have you on the farm. <laughs> on the farm. Well, all right. 
Hello? You are on the farm, David. Thanks for joining us. So, All David, right. you are uh, an alternative fuels expert, if I if, if I can't say, um, particularly ethanol. Yes, and in particular, I'm an expert on appropriate, you know, technology scale ethanol instead of the giant. Uh, alcohol plants that are being built uh, in different countries, you know, we're talking more about a people's level of alcohol production. Okay, so if you, if you could give us a if you could give us a basic rundown, um, what you know, what is ethanol in general? Just you know, from a from an ethanol one one hundred one standpoint, what is it? Well, it's nothing more or less than moonshine, actually, and we're talking about. Uh, you know, rather pure moonshine, uh, 192 proof up to 200 proof for pure alcohol. So, uh, so basically it's, uh, something we're all familiar with, but, uh, what most people don't realize is that alcohol was the first auto fuel long before gasoline was ever invented. It wasn't like there was all this gasoline lying around and someone said, gee, wouldn't it be great if we had an engine that ran on this stuff? Uh, it was the other way around. We had the engines, they were running them on alcohol. And gasoline was an afterthought. Wow, interesting. So a lot of people out there are saying, okay, gas prices are through the roof. Our economy is crumbling because all these people have to drive long distances and then they have to spend gas to do it, and that goes into the packaging and the oil prices. So they're now looking for these alternative fuels out there. Why is ethanol the good alternative fuel? Why not uh, you know, hydrogen or uh, solar panels or things of that nature? Well, you know, anything that's solar is going to be uh, something that we're going to want because it solves the problem permanently. The problem yeah. with, you know, things like oil or coal or some of the other alternatives they've got proposed for us, like oil shale to oil or tar sands to oil, which they're doing now, or coal to liquid fuel, all those things are still based on re- non-renewable, you know, sources of energy, fossil fuels, and they eventually run out, and as they run out, they get more expensive, and that you know, without even getting into the environmental aspects, which burning those fuels is a disaster. So whatever we replace those with, and we have to replace them starting like yesterday, uh, you know, because oil is already running out, we ought to replace it with something that's based on the sun. And alcohol is liquid solar energy. Plants take carbon dioxide from the air, they mix it with water and sunlight, and make sugar. And that sugar, we ferment with yeast to make alcohol, which we can then burn in the cars. So when we burn alcohol in a vehicle, we give back the carbon dioxide and water to the atmosphere so that we can go ahead and grow next year's energy crop. But the solar energy, which is released, is what drives our car down the road. So alcohol is a liquid solar energy that we can produce forever as long as we have, well, the sun. And if the sun ever burns out, well, we have other problems. Yeah, we're really in in big trouble. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, Lindsay, uh, the, 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 the thing here is, what about the big oil companies? You know, they're not making their profits. So the the, the big question that most people have is that, um, okay, we have this. You know, we know Brazil runs off of ethanol. A lot of people around the world have started adopting it. What about the big oil companies? How you know where, where do they fit in? How come? You know, there's the, yeah, there's there's two different things I have here. We know that there's oil in Anwar. We know there's oil in the, in the Dakotas. We know there's all kinds of places in our own country that we can get oil from and therefore at least have the gasoline to lower the prices. But then there's also the idea that there's alternative fuels that we can use and not have to worry about this. So there's like two major problems. But what do you say to the person that says, you know, why aren't we using it in this country? What do you, you know, what do you think the reason is why America's not using ethanol permanently? Well, you brought up Brazil. You know, Brazil is, 
is the fifth largest country in the world. This is not some little pit, pit squeak nation. And yet they import, get this, not one drop of oil, not a single drop. They have some of their own oil, but 80% of their cars are now running on straight alcohol, and the rest of them run on 25% alcohol. You know, so the the need to run on gasoline is absolutely not there. I mean, Brazil has proven that as one of the largest countries on earth to convert. In Sweden, they expect by 2012. Can I interrupt you for a second, David? Well, go ahead. How much? Uh, how much are they spending uh, per gallon over there? Uh, they're spending about two dollars a gallon on alcohol, and they're spending about five to six on gasoline. Okay. Okay. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. So you know, it's not only is it a good idea; it's cheaper. Now, you know, in the United States, uh, we're using corn instead of sugar cane, so it's more expensive here, not because it should be, but because right now uh, corn prices are being manipulated by the oil companies. So if you want to ask why we're not using alcohol in the United States, it's the same answer that we've had for 100 years, which is we have tremendous political resistance from really powerful oil companies, which, you know, you asked what about the oil companies. If we went to alcohol, we wouldn't need oil companies. So basically Mm -hmm. that's what it's all about. And if you take a look at who runs the country, well, we've got an oil president, an oil vice president, and a secretary of state who has an oil tanker named after so if you need to ask further than that why we don't have alcohol, I don't know. But, you know, we used to run on alcohol in this country. Uh, the Model A and Model T were both designed to run on alcohol and ran on gasoline also as an afterthought. So, you know, in the in, the, in that era, if you lived in the city, well, you could get gasoline because it was a waste byproduct of oil, just like gasoline is today. But if you drove out of the city, there were no gas stations. You stopped by a farm, you tanked up on alcohol, and... You were able to switch from one to the other from right inside the cab of your car. You turned a knob on the dash, which changed the air-fuel mixture, and then you tuned the car differently by changing when the spark fired, and you did that uh, digitally. You did that with the digits of your left hand. In other words, you turned a lever, and you were able to go from alcohol to gasoline. Now, you know, up until the early 1900s, alcohol and gasoline ran neck and neck in terms of who was the dominant fuel, and Rockefeller decided he wasn't going to play fair anymore. So he went and funded the Women's Christian Temperance Movement to the tune of $4 million, and they got prohibition passed, which, by the way, was not to stop the drinking of alcohol. It was to stop the manufacture of alcohol for any purpose. And that took alcohol off the market for quite a long time and made gasoline the national fuel. Think about how few, how, you know, how few people in this country even know that, and and that was that was I've heard about that before, but I'm glad you said it because now it makes sense. Um, here's the question, and I mean, you know, all all these issues, we know that gas prices are, are astronomical. We, I mean, granted, oil just hit a you know a little bit of a low, not a low today, but it dropped five and a half dollars. You know, big deal, lowest, uh, biggest drop since '93. Even still, with that, you know, we're a lot of experts are predicting two hundred dollar barrels in oil, and and we know that gas is going to go above. I think the national average just hit. $4.11, regardless. The point being, gas is at a ridiculously high price. And I think the, the question here, David, is what can we do as a population? But let's start even smaller than that. What can I do? I don't know anything about engines. I don't know anything about alcohol other than I like to drink it. So what can I do? I mean, I, you know, uh, obviously struggling with the high gas prices. Can you make recommendations of altering your engines or other things that we can do to help ease the burden of high gas prices? Well, I'll be happy to explain that, but the first thing you got to do is stop whining about high gas prices. 
the United States isn't paying anything like the full price of gas. I talked to farmers in Australia you know, earlier this week. They're paying $9 a gallon. I talked with colleagues in the ag department in Ghana. They're paying $14 a gallon. And in South Africa, they're paying 12 So we're actually paying that here, too. $5.60 a gallon is the subsidy that we pay from our taxes to the oil companies on every gallon. So we're really paying more like 9 or $10 ourselves here. They just hide it in the income tax. Now, what can we do about it? Basically, making alcohol is mankind's second oldest profession. This is not some high-tech process that is all patented. You can't do yourself. You know, you start off with a material that has starch or sugar in it. You go ahead and ferment it using yeast, the same yeast that make wine or beer. And then once the yeast are dead drunk and they keel over, usually at around 13% alcohol, uh, we then have to put that in a still distillery, which we then boil the alcohol off. And with a good uh, modern uh, low-tech still, we can get 192 proof on the first pass, which is plenty strong enough to run your car. In fact, in Brazil, that's all they use. They don't get the last uh, 4% of water out. That's what the last eight proof is, is water. And uh, they've been doing that for 20 years. It, you know, Not only does it not hurt the cars, it actually helps them run a little better. So a tiny amount of water is actually a benefit. So... You know, can you do this yourself? Absolutely. Um, building a still that would produce 100 gallons in a day, and you have to know how to weld to build a still, so you might have to join up with a buddy who knows if you don't know how. Um, building a still like that, uh, which, which is a little bigger than this desk I'm sitting in front of here, would probably produce 100 gallons in a day, and you're talking about doing it for way under a dollar a gallon. You could yeah, do that for maybe a oh, still like that would cost you like $1,500 to build. Yeah, sure, and, and I mean it all wow. sounds it all sounds great, and I I'm, I really I like the idea. But for all intents and purposes, for someone who you know, like myself, maybe wants to drive to New Jersey once in a while, and basically can't even if I could afford it. The, the question is, is this really practical? Uh, you know, I, even if, let's say you, so you have to modify your engine, do you have to actually modify your car's engine to accept this, or is it just it'll just run? Well, that's a good question. You know, because that's the uh, the big thing that people say is why we can't go there. You know. 30% of the oil that we currently use comes from the Middle East. Now, it turns out that your car, the one you're driving right now, can run on 50% alcohol with no modifications whatsoever. The modern vehicle computer is able to make adjustments just like it does for winter and summer gas. You know, there's differences in that, and the computer makes adjustments for the, the differences. It can continue to adjust for alcohol uh, in any car up to 50%. Uh, so you can see very radically that if we only replaced 30% of our fuel with alcohol, you know, blended it with gasoline, we'd need no oil from OPEC. And, like, that would be kind of a good thing if we didn't have to be in the Middle East, wouldn't it? Now, no, of course. You, you, can, uh, you can also talk about running your car on straight alcohol, which takes some minor modifications. So, uh, you know, in the book that I have on alcohol, uh, I explain lots of off-the-shelf ways that you can take common auto parts and use them to modify your current car for usually less than 300 bucks, sometimes as little as only 50 bucks, so that you can, instead of running 50%, you can run 100% alcohol if that's what you want to do. Now, you were saying, what do I do when I'm, you know, like away from my still? Well, right. you know, dual fueling is uh, something that, is really practical. In fact, you can buy cars and have been able to buy cars from Detroit 
that run on both alcohol and gas since 1994. Those are called flexible fuel vehicles, and they essentially just use a smarter computer that's able to adjust over the whole range of alcohol or gasoline mixtures. There are millions of those on the road. You can pick them up at auctions from government auctions all the time. I've got a 2000 Ford Ranger pickup truck that was made right there in Detroit to run on both alcohol and gas. Now, there are about 2,000 stations in the United States where you can actually buy alcohol at the pump. It's called E85, which is 85% alcohol, which is certainly better than buying gasoline. So, you know, you can either, you can also get kits. Uh, some are made in Brazil and some are now being made in the United States that you can slap onto your car, which makes your computer smarter, so like an additional computer and make your car into a flexible fuel car so you can run on both alcohol and gasoline so you don't have to worry about what happens when you get out of range. So we have a whole range of solutions, and generally below $300, that you you can either do yourself out of parts from the store or you can even buy kits to do it, and your car can run on both alcohol and gas. On the assembly line, it only costs an extra 30 to $40 to make a car run on both fuels than it does to just run on gasoline. So there's a lot of talk in the Obama camp about um, making it mandatory that any car sold in the U.S. is flexible fuel um, phased in over a period of years, give them two or three years to get their act together to do it. In Brazil, when the first company, Volkswagen, went flexible fuel, the other car companies had to catch up or not sell any cars. And within three years, all the car companies in Brazil we're only making flexible fuel cars, and nobody makes a gasoline-only car anymore because you can't even sell it used. Nobody wants it. Now, I'm out in California where that's, you know, we're already starting to see the effects of peak oil, where if you've got an SUV and you want to trade it in on a new car that has better mileage, fat chance. Nobody's going to take that SUV off your hands. They're choking on lots of those, and you can't even trade them in anymore. That's what happened in Brazil when they started going flexible fuel is people couldn't sell gasoline-only only cars for anything. Nobody wanted them. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's crazy. I, I'm just trying to figure out. Obviously, there's money to be made in this solution well, here. Man, so awesome. my, my brain's turning in, in several here, directions here, Ben. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great analysis, and it just kind of opens up the eyes as to, you know, what we can do and what we can't do and really what the, what the bigger picture is. And um, and what's practical? Yeah, well, and that's that's what it is. And it sounds it sounds to me, David, like you know what you're talking about is practical. That if you have enough time and effort, and if you can put the money into it and, and have the patience to learn, that yes, it can happen. But obviously, when you talk about a grand scale, I don't think this whole country is going to adopt those uh, techniques. But we have a break coming up, David. Stay with us. We'll take phone calls on the way back, and then I want to basically ask the question: Is uh, you know where do you see this country in three to five years, given this apparent oil crisis? And we'll talk a little bit about peak oil when we return, folks. AnimalFarmShow.com. When we get back, more David Bloom and your phone calls. Stay tuned. We are back. You are on the farm, the animal farm, the one and only. 512-646-1984 is the number to reach us. We are talking to David Bloom, author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas. David, do you mind if we go to the phone lines and take some phone calls? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Let's start with Alex in Texas. Oh, I'm sorry. Who? Robert from Arizona. You're on the line. Robert, are you there? 
Hello? Yes, I'm here. Hello, What's David? up, bro? Uh, can you guys hear me? Yes, yes, sir. We can hear you. Go ahead. Oh, fantastic. I'd like to know about waste products. What kind of waste products can we use to make ethanol in North America, and how much ethanol could we make just using waste products that's currently dumped in a river or thrown in a landfill? Oh, you hit my favorite subject, you know, which is using using what's going to waste. Uh, one of my favorite sources of alcohol is donuts. You know, cops can only eat so many, and then they have to throw the rest away. So, <laughs> you know, so like what's in a donut? I mean, it's not food, right? So basically it's starch, wheat starch. You know, they take the good part of the wheat out and use it for something else, and they throw the rest of it in donuts. And then there's 10 teaspoons of sugar in every donut. So you got like straight carbohydrates, which is what we want to make alcohol from. So when we cook up the donuts to make the alcohol, um, you know, a really cool thing happens because donuts are cooked in fat. So we get a big floating cap of fat on top of the vat that we're making the alcohol. But we can skim that off, run it through a fuel oil burner, and fire the still with it. So that's a raw material that we make alcohol from that comes with its own energy source. That's a pretty good one. Making alcohol from donuts, about 30 cents a gallon, and uh, a pickup truck full of donuts will make you 100 gallons. The first time I did this, this was back in... That's just Pius is commenting. Go ahead. Go on. Yeah, yeah. Back in the 80s, I did this for the first time. I went to a donut shop, dropped off some drums, and said, well, call me when they're full. And they called me, like, the next morning, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, we're talking a lot of waste there. But let's let's go for, like, the big enchilada of waste in this country. Um, you know, basically, uh, one of the things that's a totally renewable resource is sewage. You know, if we're not going to run out of sewage, and if we did run out of sewage, we'd have other problems. So, uh, like everybody would be dead. So basically, uh, sewage is treated in about 500 places in the United States using cattails. You know, the marsh plant you see growing by the side of the road that looks like a a hot dog on a stick, you know, during the fall. Well, the base of those cattail plants, the stalks, are full of 60% starch. Well, corn is only 70% starch. So cattails grown in sewage or even just grown in the ditches is an enormous source. And using less than 2% of the equivalent of the United States farmland, if we processed our sewage with cattails, which is a really good method, it takes all the nutrients out of the water before it gets discharged, we could actually supply the entire country with all the uh, replacement for gasoline and diesel we need, over 200 um, billion um, gallons per year. So you're looking at yields of 7,500 gallons per acre compared to corn at 250 gallons per acre. So these are the kind of things that, you know, the oil companies don't want you to hear about because they want to tell you that, oh, we can't possibly make enough. We don't have enough land. You know, we'd have to use up all of our food to make alcohol. This is complete nonsense, and this is complete smokescreen. Basically, where the oil companies are going is they're going for 150 to $200 a barrel oil because what they want to do to replace the, the petroleum that's running out is go to oil shale, uh, to gasoline, tar sands, more tar sands to gasoline like they're doing in Canada, and, of course, they want to turn coal into gasoline. But to do that, you've got to convince people to pay 150 to $200 a barrel because those are very expensive methods of producing uh, fuel. So alcohol, you come along with alcohol, and you can produce it 
even for corn at like $60 a barrel. Well, if biofuels takes off, the oil companies are in deep, deep trouble. And if the reality became known that, like Brazil, the whole country can run on alcohol, um, you know, they have a real problem on their hands because, you know, they've been trying for 100 years to buy all the farmland. But those dang farmers, you know, they just won't sell. So, you know, uh, here we're talking about transferring wealth from a handful of giant corporations back to the people, back to the farmers, where they can actually produce fuel for sale in their communities. That's one of the propositions in the book is that we cut out the supply chain. Like if a group of consumers got together and started like we explain in uh, Alcohol Can Be Gas, how you can go ahead and set up a neighborhood alcohol station for a few hundred dollars per person where you can then contract with farmers to supply you with alcohol and you've cut out everyone in the middle and you're giving your money directly to farmers to supply you in the city with your fuel now you've done a thing that's really pretty incredible because if you give a dollar to Chevron for your gasoline, or sorry, a hundred dollars to Chevron for your tank of gas, you know, ninety-nine dollars of that goes to Geneva into some Swiss bank account. But if you go ahead and give your alcohol, your money for alcohol to a local farmer, well, that farmer then says, oh, "I've got to get my truck fixed." So he takes some of your dollars and he gets his truck fixed at the local mechanic. Yeah, I mean, the, picture, the picture itself here, David, just seems to be being painted. I mean, we know what the picture looks like. It is this fascist type of country where yeah. you have government in hand here with corporation, of course, oil corporations. That's the definition yeah. of fascism, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it seems like that's obviously the biggest problem. And that, you know, you explained it really well, though, that we have this uh, ascension of the price of oil, a barrel of oil. I want to keep moving on the phones, though. Rich, uh, Robert, ah, I love freedom. Yeah, Robert, thank you for the call. I want to move on. Alex in Texas, you're on the Animal Farm. What's up? Yeah, guys, can you hear me clear? Yes, sir, you're on the air. Great, I'm just driving along through some hills. Yeah, I mean, this fellow, everything he's saying is true to a point. I'm all for decentralizing things. The oil companies do want to keep us uh, on uh, the uh, commodities they're bringing to market. But when you then connect it to peak oil, it's actually the oil companies that came up with the peak oil scam, like the beers and diamonds for artificial scarcity, there are giant oil fields all over the world. There is easily extractable oil all over the world. It's just governments uh, from those areas, like 90-plus percent of Alaska or Utah, and they won't let that oil out. So, yeah, then they do go after oil shell and things here in Texas. But in Texas, from Dallas to Houston, they just found one of the biggest gas uh, fields in the world, oil at every level. I mean, just ultra-massive coming out of pressures like Saudi Arabia, 12-inch pipes out of each well. And, and, and so my whole point is, you're right, the oil companies demonize, uh, you know, corn prices going up, and then blame it on biofuels when our waste could literally supply us. I'm all for decentralizing, uh, and, and uh, you know, I agree with him on, on that. It's just that the fact is 75% uh, of the gas increase we've seen the last four years has been dollar devaluation, period, and then people dumping dollars globally into commodities, running for the door into some real asset, has driven up the other 25%. And that's just a fact, and no one will say that in U.S. media. It's all over Reuters, all over Bloomberg, all over OPEC press releases. They're begging the U.S. to stop plunging the dollar. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, saying that it's peak oil, that is a... Uh, eugenicist, and I don't believe this guy knows its roots, 
that push by the Club of Rome. They want to shut the power off and not let us have biofuels either. So they want to artificially make oil shortage. They want to use fake carbon footprint baloney to micromanage and shut down biofuels and local communities. And if we don't get sophisticated and figure out the full battle plan of the New World Order, folks, it's over. I mean, I've got all the documents where the oil companies shut down most of the refineries uh, from 95 to 2000. Associated Press reported on that. I mean, they're certainly running a scam, but the nature of the scam is not known by the public. Okay, yeah, no, well, let, me, let me deal. Hold on one second, David. We actually got a break coming up. Alex, stay on the line. We'll hold you over. It's a good point. I wanted to bring up the peak oil thing as well, and I'm sure it was going to bring up some interesting points. So stay tuned, folks. AnimalFarmShow.com. When we get back, uh, we'll have Alex, and we'll have David's response to the peak oil crisis in the New World Order. Stay tuned. Talking with David Bloom, 512-646-1984, folks. Love when you participate. Uh, Alex in Texas called in and asked uh, David Bloom a lot of things, first of all, but it was a lot about peak oil. I think this is Alex Jones, so I want to give a little bit of a round of applause for Alex Jones. Pyth, if you would. Of course. Yes, we you. are big fans of so, Alex Jones here. Yes. Animal Farm. Alex, yes. you are in your own hold. So I want to let David respond because we ran into yeah. <laughs> we, we ran into a break. So, David, uh, respond to Alex's comments, and then I'll bring Alex back up, and then we'll have a little discussion. Well, basically it goes like this. You know, we've been predicting peak oil for a long time, since the 1950s actually, when when it was first predicted by, um, you know, uh, Hubbard King. Uh, he basically said, that we're going to peak in the United States in 1970, and the oil companies all said, oh, no, 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 that'll never happen. we got a couple hundred years worth of oil. And, of course, in 1970, we peaked in the United States. He also yes. said that roughly after 2000, we were going to peak on a worldwide basis. And I wrote about the same thing back in the 1980s because I had access to all the same information. And as an uh, engineering ecologist, I was able to read the writing on the wall. And I also looked at the reports that General Motors were, were putting out, which had obviously a vested interest in making sure they had cars that ran on fuel that was going to be around. And they said peak oil was going to come around 2000. So, you know, it's basically here. And it's tempting to say, oh, the oil companies are just controlling production, so we have to pay more money. But, uh, you know, the, the thing that I totally agree with Alex about is they've closed a bunch of refineries. The reason why they've closed them is there's no oil to put through them. The reason why they haven't built any new refineries is that if they did, there'd be no extra oil to put in it anyway. You okay, know, David, so, I let, let me, I'm sorry, let me let Alex respond. Alex, you on the line there? Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. I have the oil documents from 1995 and 96 where they said there was too much oil. These are internal secret documents that were gotten by lawsuits. The Associated Press reported on the article. They said that there was too much oil, a glut of oil, and they had to shut down smaller oil companies shipping fuel in for refining, and they bought up over 220 of them and shut them down. And then going back to saying we're at peak oil and just stating it, you know, and in global warming's real. We better have a carbon footprint tax on everybody. I have the Club of Rome documents that is about control and socialism. And then, you know, just to finish up here, 
there are giant discovered oil fields all over the Gulf of Mexico, all over Alaska, and to then just state we've hit peak oil when they have found giant oil reserves all over the stands, all over India, all over Russia. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I have a lot of family that works at refineries and all the way down to roughnecks. You name it, I know the whole oil industry. There is actually two different types of oil. Uh, there is the, and of course coal and other things, There, there is the fossil fuel, but then there's also a lot of evidence. They're now finding oil and gas at 20,000 feet, 16,000 feet, uh, with uh, really no connection to any type of uh, you know alluvial deposits in the sands or you know any of this, uh, say when Texas was under uh, an uh, inland sea. So that's the basic facts, and we have the facts, but it doesn't matter. We're the gullible people who will believe the, the delusions. The dollar is plunging. That's why you're paying more for fuel, period. And you watch, you'll pay for everything else more. It's the dollar, period. Period, period. PrisonPlanet.com. You guys have a good one. Alex, thanks Thank so you. much for the call. Ben, you want to respond? I know this is well, a yeah. touchy subject. I, mean, I, want to, I just want to say something in regards, you know, whether, whether, in my opinion, whether peak oil exists or not, or whether it's a, a false thing created by the oil companies, we do want to, we do want to remember that the, the oil is basically, and we all know this, sort of an inefficient type of energy. And the, the ultimate solution for, I think, both sides of the argument is to get us off oil into some type of alternate uh, energy source. So, yeah, I, I absolutely. Agree, so, you know, just a quick couple of comments and we can move on to other callers or other subjects. But basically, if you get below 15,000 feet, oil doesn't exist. It turns into natural gas. The documents that talk about the so-called abiotic oil, non-fossil fuel oil, were um, produced in Russia back under Stalin, which basically were created because if you were a petrogeologist under Stalin and you said oil was going to run out, you just were killed. So... They created this whole thing of abiotic oil, in other words, without biology oil. Uh, it was a whole fabricated set of things that the scientists in Russia did to stay alive, but everybody in the scientific world, you know, laughs at that. It's just not true. Um, but, you know, it doesn't matter because whether the oil companies are controlling the price or whether peak oil is controlling the price, we can't afford the price. And so no matter why uh, the price of oil is expensive, you know, you and I need to get off of it, and we need to get off of letting those people um, control our lives and control our economies because they're doing a pretty bad job of it. We There's can no do question. a much better job ourselves There's by no doing alcohol. And, and, and I'm absolutely I, adamantly opposed to that. Thank you, George. I'm George Bush. <laughs> He's on the line, too, there, David. And, and the other thing that Alex George was saying, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, just, it's just about the government control. The other thing that Alex brought up that I feel very strongly about, and I have, you know, just to let you know, David, I have enormous respect for your knowledge about this, and I, I would probably agree more with Alex on the peak oil thing, but either way, maybe even with a more neutral ground at this point, is just this idea of how government is manipulating this go green movement. Uh, Charles and I, Charles Ratner, we correspondent often, <laughs> him and I often have a little discussion about it, and I'm all for, you know, using fuels that are, you know, a lot safer, a lot cleaner. You know, I think we should be more responsible as people, but the bottom line is that the government is manipulating this whole green movement. It's making me sick. And it's all, well, here's about, how getting, doing it. it's all about getting your money. Go ahead. Yeah, so the way they're manipulating the green movement right now is they've got the entire green spectrum arrayed against alcohol. They basically, uh, you know, saw, this was a couple of years ago, they saw that climate change folks, green folks, progressive folks, labor, were all starting to pull behind alcohol. And the oil companies had to put an end to that. So we've seen a billion dollars worth of propaganda over the last year 
trying to paint alcohol as competing with uh, food interests, um, you know, for crops in this world and making a moral argument that we shouldn't go to biofuels. So now you've got green groups across the country, uh, you know, being sucked in by this propaganda and, uh, you know, marshalling against having us go to biofuels as if they don't understand what we're going to get instead is a horrendous brew of horrible synthetics. Now, the reality of food versus fuel is is like this. If basically alcohol and alcohol plants, and this is not true, but I'm just going to throw it out there, if alcohol plants were competing with food interests for corn, the idea is supply and demand. There's only so much corn. If more than one customer is trying to buy it, then the price gets bid up. So the idea is there has to be a shortage of corn for the price to go uh, of alcohol and corn to go up. Uh, and in reality, last year's harvest was not a shortage at all. We had a, the biggest harvest in 33 years. We had 1.6 billion surplus bushels of corn in addition to everything the alcohol plants and the food companies needed. So with no shortage, there could be no reason, no economic reason, why the price of corn should go up. But as Alex you know, indicated, there's a bunch of people dumping money into the commodities market and driving up the price of corn and guess what? The people that are doing that are OPEC and the oil companies. They are trying to drive up the raw material price of what it takes to make their competing fuel, alcohol. And so we're looking at a pretty huge conspiracy in commodity trading, which is just now getting investigated. It'll take years before they get to the bottom of it because there's no control over uh, oil companies buying uh, corn at high prices and keeping it uh, away from the alcohol plants. So we're like dealing with huge, you know, huge forces of manipulation going on. And the only way that we can stop this, and we can, is to go ahead and start making fuel ourselves as businesses, as individuals, uh, as municipalities that are getting hit by the high oil prices. Um, and the, the good news is we can do this, and it's being done around the world. The United States is actually running behind places like India or Brazil or even Sweden that are going to biofuels in a big way, saving money, you know, not having huge foreign debts because they're not paying for oil. And well, we can uh, be doing David, the same thing here. David, let me riddle me this, okay? Because here in the United States, you know, we talk, we call, call ourselves a free nation, say that we can do all these things, but you know, mm -hmm. we actually need permission and a permit to go out and catch a fish in a lake. Um, yeah. What what makes you think that our government is going to let us build distilleries in our backyards? Are, are we going to need a license for that? Um, can we even do this? Because a lot of times that's that's what the problem is. You get the you get a well, great idea. Say, You'll love this. We beat this. We won this battle back in the 1980s where you couldn't even actually make beer or wine in any quantity. And brew pubs weren't even a, a dream yet in the 80s when I got involved in alcohol. So, you know, what I did back in the 80s is I took a look at the uh, huge, huge reams of regulations of the revenuers, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which prohibited anybody from distilling alcohol for anything. And I found, just like you always find, the little exceptional ex experimental permit that corporations always have tucked somewhere in the background so they don't have to fill out all the paperwork when they want to try something new. So what we did was uh, I built a still, and I started waving my hands to the revenue saying, look at me, look at me, I'm distilling alcohol. And they took me away in handcuffs, and they arrested me. Interesting. But that was great. We're running up on the break. We'll be right back. We are talking to David Bloom, author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas. You are listening to the Animal Farm. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
My, you're thirsty. Welcome back, folks. AnimalFarmShow.com is the website. So glad you can join us on this lovely, lovely evening. We're speaking with David Bloom. His uh, book is Alcohol Can Be a Gas, and his website is permaculture.com, P-E-R-M-A, culture.com. David, uh, last segment here yes. with you. Well, first of all, thanks again for coming on the line. I have a final question. I'm not sure thanks if for coming. Yes. <laughs> yes. Again, that's, that's George Bush. Um, here's a question I have, David. I mean, obviously, the, the crisis that we're in now is, is getting worse, it seems, every day, every week. Where do you see the United States as far as the price of gasoline and the effect that it's going to have overall on the economy, the taxpayer, the American, ultimately, in the next five years? Five years from now, where do you see us? That's a very interesting question. <laughs> Thank you, George. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, uh, I'll answer uh, it. I'll answer uh, it. Uh, just uh, to finish up, we said before the break, it's legal to make alcohol. You're able to make alcohol up to 5,000 gallons on a free permit from the federal government. If you want to make more than that, the permit's inexpensive, and it's um, not hard to get. Now, you know, what I would like to see us be at in the next five years is that we have thousands of alcohol plants across the country where people are making fuel in their communities and selling it locally at stations for uh, you know for local use because basically with what's going on with the dollar what's going on with energy alcohol you know for fuel will essentially be as good or better than money in other words you know you're going to need fuel to get your vehicle to move to run your generator even to uh, cook your food I mean alcohol can do all of these things including light your home so you know I think we're going to be in a place where in the not-too-distant future we're not going to be able to afford to buy oil for things like cars, and we're going to have to produce our own stuff here if we're going to um, keep any kind of semblance of a decent, civilized life. And, you know, the thing is about doing alcohol ourselves is it has uh, tremendous benefits for localizing our economy, which is really our only salvation in this globalized world that we have now is if we stop giving our capital you know, a way to uh, corporations that basically bleed us dry. So, you know, if we don't go there, what are we going to be looking at? We're going to be looking at, you know, 15 to $25 a gallon gasoline in, in the next five to 10 years. Oh, uh, we're going to find, oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, we're already halfway there in the rest of the world. We're already at $12 in most of the rest of the world without taxes. Yeah. So it's already happening. It's not like a oh, way off in the future we're going to have peak oil or we're going to have oil shortage and we're going to have high prices. It's already happening. And five years is a long time from now. If you think back five years here, we were talking about, you know, gasoline down around $2 a gallon. It's, that was two years ago. Yeah, that was, that was less than two years ago. I remember that. Yeah, and back when George Bush first took power, it was down around $1.19. So, you know, eight years uh We've been pretty raped, you know, and the next five years is going to be nothing compared to what the last eight years has been like. So sure, David, it's really up to, to us to do it. Sure, I'm sorry. I want to take one more phone call because we're almost out of time. Is that, uh, hang on one second. Alan in California, are you on the uh, line there on the animal farm? What's up? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, uh, Alan, on, you have a question for David? Yeah, on uh, C-SPAN about a year ago, scientists said there's not enough surface area on the earth to grow enough corn to, to replace oil directly. Yeah, you know, you can tell the truth and lie at the same time. So that would be true if you're talking about corn as the energy crop. Corn is a lousy energy crop. It's only 250 gallons per acre. And, you know, if we try to grow all of our ag land in corn, 
we would probably just barely cover our energy supply. But it's really inefficient. There's many other crops that we talk about in the book that are five, ten times as productive as corn to produce fuel because what we want is carbohydrates. And uh, corn puts most of its energy into growing stalks and not into the grain. And, you know, if you've ever looked at corn, it's a six-foot-tall plant. Here's these two little ears. Well, where did all that solar energy go? It went into the stalks. So when we talk about crops like Jerusalem artichokes or sweet sorghum or even fodder beets, which are like big sugar beets that produce 1,000 gallons or 1,200 gallons an acre compared to corn, uh, we can easily supply the energy we need. And as you heard earlier, we talked about uh, cattails. We can even use ocean kelp, which uh, the American Gas Association estimated that just growing off the California coast, if we grew kelp, which is largely made out of fructose, uh, we could supply about two-thirds of the nation's fuel just from that. And that's not using any land whatsoever. So we have so many ways that we show in the book that we can make alcohol. It's embarrassing that we keep getting talked into scarcity about energy when, you know, the amount of solar energy hitting the earth that we can turn into liquid fuel and turn into natural gas is enormous. So, yeah. you know, it's David, just the way it is. David, I, it's a, they're great points. We're yes. running out of time, unfortunately. Um, could you give people your website, give people your book, uh, tell them how to buy the book? Um, and, and then uh, we can wrap it up. Yeah, tell them from what your you website betcha. Yeah, the website is, is permaculture.com, as in permanent agriculture. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of information about alcohol on the site. You can also order the book there. You can also get it locally. And we do encourage people to ask their libraries to order the book because uh, this book is pretty darn large. You know, it's got everything you possibly could ever need in it from making alcohol to convert your vehicles to start your business running alcohol. Everything's in it. So, um, like I say, get it from us, get it from Amazon, get it from your bookstore, and get it from your library. It's it's out there. But do whatever you do, the next thing you need to do is if alcohol is for, for sale at the pump where you live, start putting some in your car. You can do that today, little by little, and get up to 50% and stop buying oil. Excellent. David, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you. You're a very, very smart guy, big brain, and I uh, hope people look uh, further into your work. Great. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, David. Bye. All right. That was David Bloom. He is the author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas. So uh, check that out, everybody. And that was him. All right, when we get I back, will folks. Veto every single beer. <laughs> of course, you will, John McCain. <laughs> folks, power segment coming up when we return. Stay tuned, AnimalFarmShow.com. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. Tyranny getting you down, folks. New World Order got you on the run. But don't fret. You got the Animal Farm Radio Show on We the People Radio Network. David Bloom, um, permaculture.com. Once again, permaculture.com. Great guest. Hopefully we'll have him back. I'm sure we're going to need to have him back soon. 
not only is the topic huge, Ben, but it, it obviously poses a lot of other questions that he's answering. So yeah. either way, folks, um, final segment, obviously, final three and a half minutes. And we're going to go to the power segment now, the Animal Farm power segment. Ooh, power segment. When we go through news at a very fast pace. It's a work in progress, but we're a bunch of little boys in the studio. Ben, you go first. Okay. (laughs) George W. Bush's greatest wish is freedom from tyranny. President Bush has posted a message on a wishing tree at the G8 summit in Japan, and true to the aims of his second term in office, his main desire is for a world free of tyranny. He writes, I wish for a world free from tyranny, the tyranny of hunger, the tyranny of disease, and free from tyrannical governments. Of course. I hurt people. I'm a dick. (laughs) As he takes away rights from us. Uh, McCain hires Giuliani's campaign manager. Can you believe that? What a choice. (laughs) Of all people to hire, he hires his campaign manager. We know how well that worked out for Giuliani. Yeah, well, civil liberty have a lot to do with <laughs> radical Islamic extremism. I appreciate that, Johnny McCain. Thanks for joining us. Civil liberties groups uh, criticize the new FBI authority here. This is out of RINF.com. Nearly 40 years ago, the FBI was roundly criticized for investigating Americans without evidence they had broken any laws. Now, critics fear the FBI may be gearing up to do it again. Uh, this is a great article. Once again, folks, RINF.com is a great site. I'll read a bit into this. Tentative Justice Department guidelines to be released later this summer would let agents investigate Investigate people whose backgrounds and potentially their race or ethnicity, get this, Ben, match the traits of terrorists. Nice. No! <laughs> Such profiling family echoes the FBI's now defunct COINTELPRO, an operator under Director J. Edgar Hoover in the 1950s and 60s, to monitor and disrupt groups with communist and socialist ties. Before it was shut down in 1971, the domestic, domestic spying operation, pardon me, formerly known as counterintelligence programs, had expanded to include civil rights groups, anti-war activists, the Ku Klux Klan and state legislators and journalists. So you can only imagine here, Ben, what they're going to use it for today with so much blogging on the Internet and just the Internet itself being a place, a beacon of free speech. Whether you like it or not, uh, it seems like the FBI now stepping up their, uh, you know, this new COINTELPRO for the 21st yeah, century. Yeah, Barry yeah. Steinhardt of the American Civil Liberties uh, Union says, uh, where is this quote? Oh, my God. Yeah, COINTELPRO for the 21st century. That's what he coined it, so I don't want to take his quote. But, Ben? Your turn. A uh, 61-year-old librarian threatened with arrest at McCain Town Hall for holding sign. They basically kicked her off the property. Um, <laughs> she was uh, holding a sign that says McCain equals Bush, and they found it offensive. Uh, it was public property, and they kicked her off, and then they said, uh, if you come back with that sign, we're going to arrest you. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, John Edwards and Carl Rove are going to have a debate. Okay. Okay, two sides of the same coin, talking about the same thing. It's going to be happening at the <laughs> University of Buffalo. I don't exactly know when. Oh. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I don't know when. It is, uh, it is we are out of time. Out. Ben, we are basically out of time. Darn. Uh, it was a great show. So time. many good morning news. I know. Well, folks, we're back on the air Tuesday, uh, Thursday, excuse me, 7 time Eastern time. When we come back uh, Thursday, we'll talk about a senior government official with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has expressed great interest in so-called safety bracelets that you'd wear on a plane that would shock you. We have a lot of health news, a lot of news coming out about Gardasil, the new risks associated with the HPV vaccine Gardasil. So, folks, don't miss it Thursday, 7 to 9 Eastern. Um, for Ben, for Pyeth, I'm Tony, saying that dissent in your government is as American as apple pie, so keep it up, folks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the phone calls. We'll see you Thursday. Take care. Have a good night. Thank you. Goodbye.